0: Gorgeous Law, and welcome to another episode of the Persistent and Nasty podcast. Elaine here, how are you all doing? Hope you're looking after yourselves, staying well, being kind to yourself and each other. Today, I chat with the brilliant Kelly Holmes, writer, director. We discuss Kelly's love of films, uh, the love of the horror genre, and all that that entails. And um, Kelly gives us some brilliant insight into putting together a pitch um, for those of you who are looking to get your films bought sold and made um also kelly and i both happen to be wearing the same t-shirt from the brilliant spark company uh, when we were recording we both had our um eat the patriarchy t-shirts which is taken from the jurassic park logo and spark company we absolutely love you so if you fancy partnering with us we'd love that you can follow us on all social media Twitter at persistentnasty, Instagram at persistent and nasty, Facebook Persistent and Nasty, send us an email to persistentandnasty at gmail.com. You can follow both Louise and I on social media. Louise is at Ms. Louise Oliver on both Twitter and Instagram, and I am at Elaine Stirrett on Twitter and at Elaine.Stirrett on Instagram. If you can, um and we are for Ever grateful to those of you who already have done. If you can help us out by donating the price of a cup of tea or coffee to us, we are so grateful. The link for that is in the description notes. And to everybody who has donated to keep persistent and nasty going, we truly are eternally grateful for all of your love, support, um, financial and otherwise. For today's episode, oh, I don't know, maybe a wee glass of wine. A beer, something fizzy. So if you're in Scotland, maybe a wee ginger. Uh, for the rest of the world, that's a, a soft drink. Um, coffee. But you know, you can always just have a good old cup of tea, sit back, relax, and enjoy. Well,
1: hello, you lovely lot, and welcome to another episode of the Persistent and Nasty podcast. Today, I am joined by director and writer Kelly Holmes. Welcome, Kelly.
2: Hi, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm doing really well. Um, I'm quite busy at the moment prepping for a shoot and doing lots of other things but yeah it's all good. Amazing, amazing. Um, we'd love to have you give us a little um, potted
1: history into how you made your way into this wonderful, magical, crazy, uh, frustrating industry of ours um, that we're all still here holding on to. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, it's, I think Film and TV have always sort of been entwined in my in my life as such. Um, I mistakenly thought when I was a kid that I wanted to be an actor. And I think I remember watching um, Indiana Jones when I was really young. I was probably about five or six years old, and being so annoyed that I was a girl because I wanted to be a guy so that I could actually be Indiana Jones like that at uh, probably about five or six years old was like my career goal at that point in time. I mean it's a career goal let's be fair, and we absolutely need a female Indiana just saying. <laughs> yeah um, and I just I, I guess I just had a real love for movies my mum and I used to go to like the video store which became the DVD store and you know pick out movies and it would always be those kind of like action adventure movies and comedies and things like that which is just not what I make now really at all (laughs) but um I used to we used to watch a lot of a lot of that when I was a kid and I did fairly well at school I quite enjoyed school um and so I was the first person in my family that went to university and um I studied film and TV at university, and kind of got to try my hand once at directing, like doing something really small, which I hope is forgotten forever now. Um, but you know, it was some things I don't think that I thought was really possible when I left university. I didn't really think I didn't really think that was possible for me because um, I came from such a working class background that I think it was just really drilled into me that as soon as I left uni, need, I needed to find a job. And I did, and I found a job like three weeks out of leaving university and started working in live TV on a shopping channel. (laughs) That was like my introduction to the industry, which I I didn't stay at. But then, um, so I did live TV for a very short while and then decided to do a master's and that sort of led me into teaching. And I was still sort of like trying my hand here and there, kind of doing really small things like did some work experience in um, Nottingham because I moved from, from I moved around all over the place, but was living in London and then moved back up towards Nottingham and was doing some sort of work experience working on films there, but still had that really working class thing of I needed to get a job. So I became a university lecturer after doing my master's and that allowed me to have access to equipment that I hadn't really had access to before and I really started making my own films then and then um, I did that for quite a long time until it started to send me a little bit mad and I decided to take a sabbatical for a year and I moved to Edinburgh and I lived in Edinburgh, made a movie there and uh, met the producer that I now work with And ever since I did that, life has changed quite a lot because I ended up becoming freelance and making more films and actually having a career in the film and TV industry at that point. Wow. That's kind of like the potted history. (laughs) I mean,
1: well, what a history. So many things that I'd love to pick up on, but I think the one thing that jumps out to me is the fact, you know, in working class and you know that thing of like you have to get a job straight away you just can't yeah. not it's um and also that kind of feeling for you of not thinking that that was possible for you either I think that will really resonate with lots
2: of people listening mm, I think I think it's become I think access to information about how to make films is so much better now than when I was leaving school or you know leaving university because the, the internet, I suppose, was still in its infancy at that point or wasn't as, you know, widely available as, as it is now. And so I think young people starting in the film industry now have an awful lot of scope to be able to, to move quite quickly. And I don't I, I didn't have any access to the industry at all. Like after doing my degree, I still didn't have any access, didn't know anybody didn't have anybody in my family that was even remotely interested in the film and TV industry, let alone knew anyone in it. Um, You know, I came from the regions, and so it wasn't like I had, you know, access even to London. And so I thought the best thing for me to do was to move to London, and so I did that after university, and then didn't really like living there, which sort of surprised me because I just assumed I would love it, but actually it didn't love it. And so I moved back to the Midlands and sort of preferred that. But where I really have enjoyed living is Scotland, and I'm not living there now. (laughs) Really unfortunate. (laughs) Lovely to hear that you enjoyed living here. Like, I want to come back. And my producer lives in Scotland a lot. I've got a lot of friends in Edinburgh and Glasgow. And yeah, it's just one of those things that it's just financially not viable at the moment.
1: Yeah, it's it's also really interesting that thing that you said about moving to London and you know thinking that you're going to love it. And there is that thing I think for a lot of creatives, no matter what role you're playing in that, not obviously in a film sense of your part. I mean, I mean the role whether it's a director or producer or actor, you know that you have to be in London. Yeah, because the business, no matter how much we push against it, there's still got this London-centric yeah thing,
2: and the amount of The amount of people that I talk to in the industry, no matter whether they're crew or whether or not they're actors or whether or not they're writers or directors, and they live in London, they're like, really don't like it. (laughs) And, you know, it's quite it's quite a regular thing that people say. I mean, I think if you have grown up there and you have family and friends there, it's a lot easier, obviously. I think it's the majority of people who, um, you know, come from somewhere else in the UK and then move to London that sometimes struggle with it because... They don't have their friends and family there. It can be quite a cold place. But then other people I know that have you know, have moved to London, they've completely embraced it and absolutely love it. I mean, I just don't think it's financially viable for me to, to live in London. So it's, you know, I finally, a few years back, managed to actually buy somewhere. And that was like a revelation because I never thought I would ever be able to do that. And I certainly wouldn't be able to do it in London. It just wouldn't be a... Mm wouldn't wouldn't be possible um but yeah I just find that the industry is so London focused and that becomes really problematic for um for a lot of filmmakers who obviously are in the regions because we feel quite a lot like we're ignored and so it becomes like this us and them kind of scenario which it really shouldn't be No, it shouldn't be
1: because we're all making work and we all want to make good work Um, and work together as well. So there really shouldn't be that that kind of thing. And just that idea that you were talking about, about feeling that, you know, being outside of London and maybe not having the same access and things like that. Your stories are still just as important,
2: though. Yes. And it's really funny because I live in Derbyshire at the moment, but none of my films are made here. for this awkward thing that I have a tendency to make films in other in other places that are really awkward to get to <laughs> so <laughs> my next film's in in Wales oh. and like like you know like you do um and that has a huge implication on the budget because obviously I don't have crew that I really know in Wales especially not in North Wales where we're shooting because there's a lot more crew in South Wales and so it becomes kind of really expensive you know you have to put all of your crew up if they're not local and obviously even though all of our actors at the moment are Welsh a lot of them live well all of them live in either London or Cardiff and so everybody has to be obviously put up and so it has a real big impact on budget and sometimes I just think I'm never gonna learn with with that <laughs> because it seems like all of my films have done that for some unknown reason and it's usually just tied to you know the story for whatever reason the last film that I made or the last big film that I made was a World War One film and we had to shoot that in Ipswich and we looked into whether or not we could build a trench locally and find a farm with a piece of land you know and everything like that but there's a very lovely story set in Ipswich that's already there and pre-built which makes things obviously a lot easier on that front but Ipswich is quite difficult to get to actually so that <laughs> so it was quite we was really expensive to put people up and so yeah I don't think I'm ever gonna I'm ever gonna learn that lesson
1: I kind of like that you just like giving yourself an extra
2: challenge <laughs> in there <laughs> I give myself an extra challenge I think as well which I think gives my poor producer a headache is all of my films through absolute accident have have seemed to be period dramas and I don't mean to make period dramas it just seems to be that's what I get funded for right okay I just wish someone would give me a sci-fi yeah, yeah. <laughs> that would be really really nice but um, all of my films seem to be period drama with kind of a, a horror or genre edge to them. And so that's that's one of those things that has just happened and I really don't know why. Um, but it it does make you worry a little bit that you'll get pigeonholed into, into doing yeah, that. Totally. I mean,
1: I think everybody, directors, writers, actors, can certainly, will certainly... Um, feel that that you've just mm. said that idea of being pigeonholed and that kind of that worry because you know we can we're all more than just one thing absolutely. yeah um but you have kind of found yourself in that kind of horror
2: genre in sense. yeah like it's kind of everything's kind of my films are kind of um they have sort of a feeling of dread in them or a spookiness to them or they're quite macabre in terms of their content and and what what they're written what, what what the writer has written whether that that's me as a writer or someone else um but i wouldn't say they are quite out and out horror films um in the sense that i, I wouldn't find myself probably making like a splatter gore film Not that I don't enjoy watching them because I love watching pretty much anything. I think it just comes down to what you like to make as a filmmaker and what you're interested in in terms of telling stories. And those those sort of like sort of like, you know, I'm just trying to think, you know, movies like Halloween or something like that. Sort of those are not the sort of stories that I'm so interested in telling as a filmmaker. Yeah.
1: Um, it's interesting, I just said someone else on the, uh, another podcast, I was like, you know, there's this idea about horror that it has to be the kind of slasher element to it, yeah. like whether it's film or whatever. But actually, there's so many variations of what horror is. Mm. And as human beings, we live different types of horror.
2: Yeah, I mean, I've taught horror as like a theory module as a university lecturer. And the very first thing in the very first lecture I would teach my stories is I don't believe there's any kind of definition of horror So a lot of academics will try the only only sort of writing you tend to find on horror, academically speaking, is people trying to define the genre constantly. And I and I don't know why that is other than the fact it feels like people want to define the genre to give it more legitimacy because it's it's seen as not being as legitimate as some of the genres, I guess. Um, And that's of no interest to me, I don't think. And so one of the first things I would always teach my students is, you know, you don't have to rely on stringent, um, what's the word I'm looking for, definitions of what the genre is, you know, and I would give them a lot of different examples of different different sorts of types of horror or what can make them feel uncomfortable and it sort of widens up the idea of what the genre might be. And there is one film I used to show my students every year that isn't really considered to be a horror film. But it's the one film I can guarantee will have them squirming in their seats and putting their hands in front of their eyes because they feel sick. And it's not even considered really to be quite a horror movie. And it's probably not something they will have ever seen as well, because it's a little bit more of a obscure French film directed by a woman. And so it's something that they might not have seen before, and um, yeah, it's the one that I can guarantee every single year that they'll I'll, they'll be telling me to turn it off. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah,
1: wow, that's so interesting. Yeah, um, yeah, just cause, yeah. I mean, that kind of unsettledness that horror can give us, I think, is far more um, uncomfortable and interesting
2: yeah. as an audience. I think that's what interests me as a filmmaker as well, is looking at what's at the edge of the genre and, and seeing what makes us feel uncomfortable or what makes us have that sense of dread that, that I find comes with a lot of horror movies. And it's not just about jump scares and it's not just about how much blood, pints of blood you spill on the floor, you know, and all, and how many body parts you cut up and, you know, all that sort of thing. And it's like, I'm quite happy watching movies like that, you know, um, But it depends if that's what you want to make as well. And I've just found myself making movies that I think sit on the edge of the genre. And I just sort of find that a little bit more interesting, I think.
1: Yeah, definitely. And how do you find being a female director and so far having done more horror-esque
2: stuff? um, Um, I find myself being put on a lot of panels. (laughs) 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 Um, You know... (laughs) Um, but that's not necessarily to do just with being a woman that works in horror. I think that just comes with the territory of being a woman director that you end up sitting on panels an awful lot. And I remember recently, um, or however many months ago it was, uh, Prano Bailey-Bond wrote an um, article in Sound, Sight and Sound about, you know, there's an issue and she's sort of vowed that she's never going to sit on Uh, panel about being a woman filmmaker in horror anymore because she's had enough of being asked to do it obviously Mm -hmm. um and i kind of agree you know i'm i'm getting well although i've not sat on a panel for quite a while because of covid but like yeah it's it's a bit much because you you just get asked the same questions over and over again really yeah and it's always, what do you think you bring as a woman that makes it different? You're directing movies in comparison to a man. And I'm just like, oh, okay.
1: Yeah, I've also just noticed your t-shirt and I'm so distracted, because is it is it from, it's, I've got the same one on, but in black. <laughs> from Spark Company. <laughs> so we've both got uh, the Eat the Patriarchy um, t-shirts on today. Um, <laughs> yeah, excellent. <laughs> I really want smart company to um sponsor us. So smart company. um <laughs> they make awesome t-shirts. They really they really do make awesome t-shirts. <laughs> Sorry, totally distracted by that. There we go. It is interesting though, that that thing that happens to women when they are in situations in our industry where it has tended to have been males who have been more kind of dominant in it, but then you're asked to be on a panel and it is uh what do you bring as a a woman rather than just, well, what do you bring, Kelly, as your vision? Yeah. Because it shouldn't really matter what your gender is or wherever Mm -hmm. you sit on the gender spectrum. It's what you want to bring and show and what you were talking about. Um, And I think it would be great if you're happy to share like some of the stories of your films and the kind of themes of them
2: as well. Yeah. So I think just by nature, I've made... A lot of films that are connected to gender and um, so the film that I made whilst I was living in Scotland we shot in the amazing Pollock House in Glasgow and it was <laughs> and it was a, um, a kind of gothic looking Victorian period drama about death portrait photography and so yeah. It's sort of like in the 1800s, um, it became really, really popular when photography came about or when photography, after photography was invented and became, became a little bit cheaper or more accessible um, for people to take photographs of the corpse of someone who just recently died. And they did it, I believe, because quite often it would be the only record of that person. So it's cheaper, obviously, to take a photograph of somebody than it is a painting, um, and it would be a record of it would be the record of, a, of the person. Obviously, there are more reasons than that, but it was one of the reasons. So the the film is sort of about that, but it's also a film about family and responsibility. And so what you kind of learn, spoiler, <laughs> is that um, the uh, the the lead, the mother character, it it kind of we hints the fact that she's actually. Bumps her husband off like she's killed her husband because she has this big bruise on the side of her face and we think that he's been a violent man. But it's put the family in serious jeopardy and they live in this beautiful big house and they're not going to, you know, because women didn't automatically inherit money. She is having to essentially sell her 16-year-old daughter off to her 43-year-old uncle in order for the family to survive. (sighs) So that, <laughs> yeah. that's what the the film... And that's all happening whilst they take a photograph of the dead husband's corpse in a family portrait with the mother and the daughter and the two younger kids as the uncles watching it all being very suspicious. Wow. So yeah, that's what that went <laughs> <one's> about. <laughs> uh, I've made lots of really small little films. I made a film called Dolls, which was... Um, an excuse for me to use the television studio at work when I was still a lecturer and got lots of my students to work on it, but there were industry people there and it was just, we built a a set that looked like a Victorian playroom and it was just a a little scene about Arrested Development really. And then the sort of bigger one that I did more recently just before COVID was um, a supernatural World War I film. Um, And so... Family portrait, the Victorian one was all about kind of first wave feminism sort of area, whereas attrition is all about men and it follows um, the lead is kind of like the least likely hero as such. And so the film is really concerned at looking at um, a different kind of male heroism and looking at male vulnerability in, in war. And there's the supernatural well supernatural kind of supernatural. I don't really know what other word to use, but you find out that the lead character has the ability to heal the wounded just by laying his hands on on them. Oh ah. so, yeah, but it takes away from him. It's a little bit green mile as such that you know he can heal somebody, but it takes away kind yeah. of his his kind of core as, as such. Um, and that film was kind of the biggest budget that I had done at that point, and you know, it involved not only it being period drama, but it was a bigger crew than I'd worked with before, and then it involved explosions and guns and you know all that kind of thing that I'd never sort of done that sort of stuff before, um, and so that was a huge learning experience. Um, and then I've been away and have been writing a lot, So I've been working on my first feature. And then I spent a bit of time working away on a Sky TV show last winter, um, shadowing a director there and being the second unit director. So that was really, really useful. Um, So where you get to see a big high-end drama production being being made. Um, and I've done shadowing previously, but only in, like, really small blocks of time, whereas this was, like, at least four months, I think, I was on it or something, and it involved, like, living away in Tenerife in winter, so that wasn't awful.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, not bad.
2: <laughs> that was good fun. And then the next film that I'm making is... Um, a gothic period drama but it is more of a it's more of a horror film so it's a proper sort of supernatural ghost story really um set in wales called the sin eater and sin eating was is a real ritual that used to happen in wales and the borders where you would essentially pay the poorest person in the village to eat the sins of the dead and there was a ritual that happened over the, the body that's normally in the like, best room in the house in the parlour. And you pass like salt and bread and beer over the body whilst this ritual happens. And the lead of the film, Jemima, is very young and she's just lost her little baby boy. So her little baby boy has just died a few days after childbirth. And he hasn't been baptised. So she's desperate for him to be baptised and everybody's telling her that it can't happen. And so she secretly employs this sin eater to come in the middle of the night to eat her boy's sins, but he tricks her and um, awful things happen. And he passes all the sins he's ever eaten onto her and we find out it's real and it's horrible. All the sins start coming out of the walls.
1: Oh my God. (laughs) this sounds like the movie for me um (laughs) everybody that listens to podcasts knows that I'm a big scaredy cat like that what that would live with me for weeks I would yeah I mean Louise when this gets made will be all over that I will watch it with my yeah through covered (laughs) eyes I mean that's a really interesting thing in itself isn't it that idea of like you know how much we kind of have progressed in some ways as a society and then not the fact that you that in previous times that the baby would have had
2: a sin yeah
1: and what is sin really and
2: yeah yeah Yeah. and then when we sort of see what sin is it doesn't manifest necessarily in the way that you you think it think it will do um but it's really, it's just all about the fear and the anger that people hold inside them during their, during their lifetime really. Um, so when she, when she sees it as such, it's terrifying for that reason. Um, there is a feature version of it that myself and the writer are working on. And so the kind of feature version of it obviously is much larger. And then the feature version, Jemima, when she inherits all of these sins, she does what the sin eater hasn't been able to do. And she makes them her friends, basically, by by being able to actually talk to them and calm them down and listen to them, which he has never done. He's just always feared them. And all of these sins are just souls that are distraught and they're afraid and they're angry and no one's ever listened to them.
1: Oh, I, she manages to do that yeah I, I love that because it's that sense of we always have preconceived ideas of something as human beings whereas if we just take a moment mm-hmm. and hear what someone's saying to us it can really shift our mm-hmm. uh, focus and intention and I know that you've also got um, a few projects in development as well yeah um, and one of them that stood out to me was um Year of the Heart
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it's I'd a very great film. <laughs> yeah, I'd love you to chat a little bit about that because I just think it sounds so interesting—the kind of take that you've got on this.
2: Yeah. So for for a couple of years now, I've been—it was actually almost pre-COVID. Now, um, I've been developing this film called Year of the Heart with my producer David, that's in Glasgow, and. It is a, um, it's a horror movie, but it's kind of, it's kind of one of those psychological horrors, sort of like a little bit more sort of Stepford Wives meets Rosemary's Baby meets, um, I'm trying to think of the other other ones that I use as references and I've forgotten off the top of my head now, Uh, but it is a menopausal body horror. And when I say that to anybody, they go, excuse me? (laughs) And it immediately gets attention just from those those couple of words, Uh, because obviously it's an an, an unusual thing to do. Um, We sort of achieved really, really, really early development money from BFI Network to to work on a treatment and do some research and um, and make a lookbook, you know, that kind of or a pitch deck or whatever you want to call them to do that sort of like really early development stuff, even before I considered writing it as a as a full feature. Then David took that away to like big film festivals like uh, that have markets like Toronto and Berlin. And, it, and he was meeting lots of people and they all seemed really interested, but there was like one company that kept on coming back uh, particularly, one um, development producer from uh, a company called Sharp House that are down in London, and they just really loved it. And we talked to a few people, but David and I were like, Sharp House just really get this. They they understand what it is that we're we're trying to do with it. And even though we were going to uh, apply for development money, which we did, and we didn't we didn't get it from the sort of usual places. Sharp House were like, no, we're going to use the money to to pay for you to write because the wonderful thing about them is they really appreciate the fact that I can't just write for free. Yeah. I'm not in a financial position where I can just like spend six months, like not being paid, you know, not that it necessarily takes, it can take six months. It's really, really dependent how fast you get through it, but it's not just one draft. You're dealing with revisions afterwards and notes and all that kind of thing as well. And plus research. So it can take a really long time to write a draft and they were really great and just said, no, we're going, we're going to pay you. So they put up the money to do development and for me to work with a script editor. And then uh, we took that draft to different markets and went to Berlin and to frontiers and different places like that, which are like co-production markets that you can introduce the project to sales agents and distributors and people like that. And we got a lot of interest there. Um, and we were just about to start applying for money for the next draft, lots of different places. When I got the job working for Sky and disappeared for ages, <laughs> so I wasn't around to write for quite a long time. Then came home and just the process has been a bit drawn out. But we just managed to get quite a large development grant from somebody, which means that I now start writing the next draft. We have support to work with. Um, Two different women who both run menopause support networks, which is amazing. So that means that we get lots of um, research, basically, with them, and they, they get paid to do that. And also a casting director, which is uh, amazing. But then I've just realised I've told you all that, but not told you what the film's about. That's OK. It was
1: great. But I think all of that is super useful because anybody... Oh, I'm
2: so that. used to this today.
1: No, I... It's, Kelly it's great because honestly anybody listening who is wondering how all of these things work who's maybe thinking about starting writing for film and all of that will love those wonderful nuggets. (laughs) So I'm so
2: used to when I talk to somebody about this I've already given them like the synopsis of it (laughs) unless (laughs)
1: I've
0: not done that. (laughs) It's okay I'll take the synopsis now.
2: (laughs) So basically Year of the Heart is set in the late 1960s and it's set in a sort of period in history where um, HRT had only just been invented. So HRT came around uh, about the end of the 1950s. Um, but by the time we got into the 1960s, it wasn't really all that readily available to women. Women could could get it if they requested it, but it wasn't something that um, all women had. And um, it's set in the late 1960s because my character Cora it becomes obsessed with um, the heart transplants that are happening in the late 1960s. And she's using it almost as a distraction because she used to be a theatre nurse during World War II and she is just a housewife now living in Welland Garden City of all places. Mm-hmm. And she becomes really obsessed with these um, heart transplants that were happening in the 1960s. And we don't know whether or not what she starts to experience is real or whether or not it's imagined and it's hallucination. So as part of my research, I found out that it was possible for women with incredibly severe um, menopausal symptoms to have hallucinations. And so um, the film sort of plays with the line of whether or not she's hallucinating or not. She starts an affair with this man and after the first time that they have sex, she wakes up in the next morning and she has a giant scar on her back and it looks like her kidney has been taken in the middle of the night. But she's convinced that it's just her menopause and my menopausal symptoms basically that are causing her to think this. And so she's like ominous, and ring about obviously whether or not she's going to go to the police and whether or not she's going to go to the doctor and what she's going to do about it. And everything just escalates throughout the film until she finds out that this man that she's been having an affair with is not who he says he is. Um, She does something pretty awful. But I mean,
1: having to deal with periods for at least, you know, kind of 35 years of your life, Mm -hmm. then we've got menopause. But on top of that, you're going to get hallucinations. Brilliant,
2: thanks. Yeah, I mean, the, the sort of interesting thing about I mean, I'm not old enough to, you know, be in the menopause, but actually the more you research it, the more you realise that there is no one experience for for women going through the menopause. Women can go through the menopause when they're teenagers. They can go through it at their 20s, 30s, 40s. You know, it happens at different times for different women. Um, It usually happens around when you're 50, 51, um but that's not necessarily the case you know it can happen at different times for different women and also obviously the symptoms really really vary Mm. so you'll talk some women like I barely realized it was happening or all that happened was my period stopped and I had a couple of hot flushes for some women it can go on for 10 to 15 years and the symptoms can be horrific and so you know it's The the main reason why I want to make this film so badly is because we barely talk about menopause in society and we never talk about it in cinema. What movie have you ever watched where you've seen a woman go through the menopause? Can't think of it. Yeah. We barely have women in lead roles over the age of 40, never mind in their 50s. Mm -hmm. You know, and there are very significant reasons why I want to make that film. Um, And it has got, attention from sales agents you know in places like that but there's still a very very long way to go you know making a making a feature film is a really really long long journey (laughs) it's a marathon
1: yeah yeah I think that's a really good thing for everybody just to kind of remember right that you know because I think I think there's this thing for some people go cool I've got an idea for a feature I'm going to write it Mm -hmm. and then I'm going to make it and it's just Mm going to happen yeah when it doesn't go there even
2: even with the amount of knowledge that I have or speaking to other people about how long it takes it isn't until you're actually in development where you're like oh my goodness development just goes on for such a long time mm-hmm. and you feel really um you feel really honored if someone's going to pay you to write something you know someone having enough um you know thinking that you're capable of being able to to write and deliver something and they're going to pay for that that's amazing you feel like you've made it by that point but you're only at the beginning of the journey yeah. <laughs> you know <laughs> but the real beginning of the journey when someone pays you to write something um it's still an incredibly long way to go yeah
1: yeah um I'm really aware of time um and I mm-hmm. obviously don't want to keep you on your Sunday afternoon but since it is spooky season mm-hmm. um and you are a lover of cinema yeah. um I would love to know a few of your favorite movies that you watch maybe specifically at this time
2: of the year. Yeah. I always <laughs> I always watch Hocus Pocus at this time of year. <laughs> Have you watched Hocus Pocus 3 yet. <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> I was actually messaging my casting director Anna, who I think you've had on. Yes, (laughs) so Anna. (laughs) So we, I was actually, we'd been talking earlier that day, I think, about cast for the next film and things. And um, I sent her an email really late, and I'm like, please don't reply to this until Monday. Uh, um, But I'm just letting you know, I'm just about to sit down and watch Hocus Pocus too, and she starts sending me these messages saying, I've already watched it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I absolutely loved it. I don't know what yeah. everybody's saying it. it was like 90s
0: oh. camp loved
2: it yeah. so I, I love lovely. it and I love um I love watching just Adam the, So Adam's family and Adam's family values at this time of year as well because I think I just remember those from when I was a kid and I really really love them mm-hmm. I think when it gets to this time of year I quite like movies that you can sort of snuggle under a blanket uh, with a cup of tea and watch, you know, things that kind of are comforting. This time of year, I always watch a film from the 1940s called Dead of Night, um, which is a portmanteau film. It's like a really famous portmanteau film, from, or one of the early portmanteau films from the 1940s, um, mostly directed by Cavalcanti, And then there are other directors that come in and do segments of it. And um, Michael, is it Redgrave? Yeah. I know. yeah michael redgrave i think is just the most amazing turn as a ventrilo- ventriloquist in the section that could be absolutely ridiculous but it's really scary and it's really really beautifully done so that's a movie that i always seem to watch at this time of year as well um and then as you can see behind me i've got like <laughs> so many dvds i
1: was i also i'm <laughs> enjoying um the wallpaper behind your
2: Behind your shelves as yeah. I, I did all that myself because I'm a bit I'm a bit into production design. Um yeah. Yeah. but yeah, I'll just basically go through my go through my DVD collection and find find movies that I kind of love. Um I don't other than things like Hocus Pocus, I don't really have like one thing that mm. I'll I'll pull yeah. off the shelf as such. Um it will normally be something that I haven't watched the previous year. Yeah. And there's loads of movies. On the streamers at the moment, that I just haven't had time to watch yet. Yeah, like you know, movies that I just haven't caught up with yet, and I'm like, damn it, I really need to watch that. Like, I haven't watched. Um, I think it's Kate Dolan's You are not my mother. I haven't watched that yet. That's available ne- on Netflix, and I really want to go and watch that. Um, you know, and so there's just yeah, lots of films that I'll probably yeah. catch up on the streamers that I haven't haven't got around to watching yet.
1: Yeah, loads. Just, I mean, also wanted to
2: ask you, like, do you miss teaching? I do, but I I, I do sort of um, part-time teaching. Um, the problem with being an academic is that a lot of the time you're not actually teaching. It's a huge amount of admin work, and your life becomes about that rather than actually about teaching, you know, and you do it because you love the teaching, not because you enjoy filling out paperwork. Yeah. Um, and so... When you do part-time teaching and you're not a salaried member of staff, you don't have anywhere near the amount of paperwork that you have to do, but obviously you're not earning the same wage either. But I'm I'm sort of doing a course, it's like an external course for the University of Birmingham at the moment, where we're just sort of training people to go into the industry and some of them will get to go and shadow on the new Stephen Knight show in Birmingham, which is amazing. People who have never worked in the industry before in their lives they're getting trained up on what the practicalities are of being on set and then they get to go and shadow on a really good show so and i'm helping amazing. to teach yeah so i'm helping to teach on that at the moment oh that's convenient um, i'll do bits and pieces and i sometimes will teach like stuff for the bfi like bfi Film academies and things like that so i still it helps to pay the bills as yeah. well <laughs> right yeah but also when I haven't taught for a while you do get a bit itchy I think because there is a need and a want to pass on some of that information that you've that you've learned so I really quite enjoy teaching script writing now as well because I've done so much script writing in the last few years that you feel like well actually I've got something that I can actually pass on that's useful now so I'm always like this trick might not work for you, but this is what how, this is how I do it, and these are the tricks that I use to fool my brain into actually doing some work.
1: <laughs> like that, I might be coming to you that for that, at Kelly. I'm like,
2: hi, I'm just in the middle of something. I will um, do anything to fool myself into doing the work.
1: <laughs> um, just as like obviously you've taught in things like, w- is there maybe like three films that you always tell your students to go and watch?
2: Um, yeah, I used to um, I used to teach a film. Uh, sorry, I used to teach a class on film and narrative theory. So it was just like how narrative theory and structure works in in films. And so I normally would recommend films of that. And um, I always used to the very first class um, we always used Indiana Jones, not just because I I love it. <laughs> <You're> <laughs> but the key, yeah. Because it works as a canonical story, basically. It is like a classical Hollywood movie through and through and works really, really well. Even just the way in which, in that very first um, sequence, Spielberg, Spielberg introduces Indiana Jones for the first time, the way that he introduces Harrison Ford. And Harrison Ford literally steps from the trees into the light, into a close up. It's just beautiful. You know instantly he's our hero, like right there in there. So that one's always a really good one to um, show. Um, I always encourage people to go and watch Rashomon um, because structurally it's a really, really interesting film. Without Rashomon, we wouldn't have Pulp Fiction and a host of other, you know, movies. Um, And then I quite often, just out of pure love for it, tell people to go and watch Cabinet of Dr. Calgary. Oh. Because it's a weird movie. Mm -hmm. and most people when they watch it don't pick up on the fact that right at the very very end of the movie the way the camera moves allows us to be able to understand that the guy at the end is actually a patient at the at the um, and a lot of people just don't pay enough attention just on the pure fact that we're not used to watching silent movies yeah used to the information being given to us in different ways. And it's just a good teaching tool about, yeah. you know, how to really search for the information in the frame.
0: I actually really like
1: silent movies, so I will uh, Yep, the silent movie, kind of 1930s, 40s gal. Very much grew up with at my granny on a Saturday afternoon. Oh. Um, final question, Kelly, is um, we like to ask our guests, uh, so we are called Persistent and Nasty, Because we were founded kind of uh, just at the end of 2017. So there's kind of a couple of political moments that happened. Mm -hmm. Um, Nevertheless, she persisted about Elizabeth Warren when she wouldn't give way. And the reclamation of the word nasty because the previous president used it against Hillary Mm -hmm. Clinton when she dared to give him actual facts. And then there was a hashtag nasty women. And we are very much about reclaiming words that are used against us to keep us down so like bossy and bitch coven witch all of those kind of words and take them back so Kelly Holmes what does the phrase persistent and nasty mean to you
2: so I think it means two things to me first of all it immediately makes me think of punk nice (laughs) it just does um but second of all it what it really means to me is is women who speak up people women who use their voice um because I'm a woman that uses her voice whether or not that's a good thing or not I don't always know but I consider it to be a good thing and I hope that when I do use my voice especially when I'm talking about how difficult it is for women in my industry that even if it means that I might not get all the jobs that I want it hopefully helps women who are coming up behind me as such Um, and so yeah for me it means women who use their voice.
1: I mean I love it it's basically what we are and yeah I mean mean, Louise and I have joked many a time that well, I joke, Louise says not to do it, that we'll never work again because we're calling everybody out. But it's fine. (laughs) It's fine. I'm like, if I'm going to make it better, then I'm making it better. So it's all good. It's necessary.
2: (laughs) It's necessary. It's
1: necessary. Yeah, it's absolutely necessary. Um, Kelly, thank you so much for coming and chatting with me today. It's been a real Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. No, thank you so much. And until next time, lovely listeners, stay nasty.